Amen. Amen. All right, so some quick intro stuff. Uh, we're in Isaiah. He's the first of the major prophets. He's son of Amos, which may be royalty. He's resident of Jerusalem. This was all the stuff from last week, written in the 8th century somewhere, and we date that because of King Uzziah. And it's written to Israel, and it is prophecy. And so there's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of history intermingled with stuff. We're going to talk way more about the history aspect of it tonight than we did last week because there's lots of history this week. And it is really, the main point is two things. It's warning of judgment in the first part, chapters 1 through 39, and then it's the hope of restoration. It's the hope of a new Jerusalem coming in the second part of the book. And so... I lopped off the first part of our eight-minute video, and just to give us a, a reminder, you have the back half, so we have a four-minute back half of our favorite video friends that will just remind us of what's coming up in verses or chapters 13 through 39. So I'm going to push this button. Well, let me get the volume ready because I'm going to need to crank that up a little bit, and hopefully... Now, you finish chapters 1 through 12 with a pretty good understanding of Isaiah's message of judgment and hope. But when will this all happen? Isaiah saw another empire arising after Assyria, and that's Babylon. Stay there. Please stand by. Let's try this iPad. Talk amongst yourselves. Who would also attack Jerusalem and actually succeed in destroying it. And that brings us into the next sections of the book. So first we have a large collection of poems that explore God's judgment and hope for the nations. We learn, first of all, of the fall of Babylon and Israel's neighbors. Isaiah could see that Assyria's world power would one day be replaced by the empire of Babylon, a nation even more destructive and arrogant. Babylon's kings claimed that they were higher than all other gods, and so God vows to bring Babylon down. And not only Babylon. Isaiah goes on to list Israel's neighbors, accusing them all of the same kind of pride and injustice, and he predicts their ultimate ruin. But remember, for Isaiah, God's judgment is never the final word for Israel or the nations. And that leads into the next section with a series of poems that tell a tale of two cities. There's the lofty city that has exalted itself above God and become corrupt and unjust. This city is an archetype of rebellious humanity and is described with language that's all borrowed from Isaiah's earlier descriptions of Jerusalem and Assyria and Babylon all put together. This city is destined for ruin and one day is going to be replaced by the New Jerusalem, where God reigns as king over a redeemed humanity from all nations, and there's no more death or suffering. These chapters are the climax to this section, and it shows how Isaiah's message pointed far beyond his own day. It was a message for all who are waiting for God to bring his justice on violent, oppressive kingdoms and bring his kingdom of justice and peace and healing love. The following section returns the focus to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. And first we find a whole bunch of poems where Isaiah accuses Jerusalem's leaders for turning to Egypt for military protection against Assyria. He knows this will backfire. And Isaiah says that only trust in their God and repentance can save Israel now. Which gets illustrated by the following story about the rise of Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem. Just as Isaiah predicted, the Assyrian armies come and try to attack the city. And so Hezekiah humbles himself before God and he prays for divine deliverance and the city is miraculously saved overnight. 
But Hezekiah's rise is immediately followed by his fall. So he hosts a delegation from Babylon, and he tries to impress them by showing everything in Jerusalem's treasury and temple and palaces. It's clearly an effort to make another political alliance for protection. Isaiah hears about this, and he confronts Hezekiah for his foolishness. He predicts that this ally will one day betray him and return as an enemy to conquer Jerusalem. And we know from 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25 that Isaiah was right. Over a hundred years later, Babylon would turn on Jerusalem, come and destroy the city, its temple, and carry the Israelites away to exile in Babylon. And so all of Isaiah's warnings of divine judgment in chapters 1 to 39 lead up to this moment. He's shown to be a true prophet because it all came to pass like he said. But remember, the purpose of God's judgment was to purify Jerusalem and bring the holy seed and messianic kingdom over all nations. And it's that hope that gets explored in the next part of the book. But for now, that's what Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 are all about. Okay, brief little setup for us. So yeah, you can head over to Isaiah 13 and a little summary for us that we will dig in to. So Isaiah 13 starts with the judgment of Babylon. And there's a a bunch of things in play here that are kind of theological principles in short. And it's, it's... you might think, like, why Babylon? Like, they, Isaiah, right in chapter 13, just starts going with Babylon. Like, Babylon is not actually that big of a player yet, historically. Assyria is still in the picture. But God knows that they will be the dominant empire, that they will take a serious place. And they also, God also, of course, knows that he will use them to judge Judah. So some things about that we can pick off right away. God's omniscience that he knows all, God's sovereignty and authority, that he actually uses nations to do his bidding, and he actually is aware of what's going on in all, all times and all places. God's rule as ultimate king, that he is actually using nations. He's, he's telling nations what to do to bring judgment on his people. But that God is just and holy always. Now, think for a moment. I know we haven't really dug into this, right? But if God uses Assyria to judge northern Israel, God uses uh, Babylon to judge southern Israel, right? Judah. Like, don't you think that that they're doing what God wants them to do, in a sense? Like, they're, they're doing what God has ordained. So, do they get a pass? like for for slaughtering his people and kicking them out and committing all those atrocities, because this was part of God's will, right? Those people that are theologically astute are shaking their heads, and you should be shaking your heads because they don't get a pass, because God is always just. He's always holy, and so even though he uses them as punishment and judgment on the nations of Israel, they're still responsible for their sins. Right? You think about it too, like even with the men that put Christ on the cross, right? God used the evil that was in their hearts to accomplish the greatest good, but they're still responsible for their evil. So if we were to read chapter 13, which we don't have the time to read every single thing in the 30-odd chapters that we're going to look at tonight, you would see that the Lord is judging Babylon themselves. But for example, look at 
13, 11, where it says, I will punish the world for its evil and wicked people for their iniquities. I will put an end to the pride of the arrogant and humiliate the insolence of tyrants. You see that God is out for justice all the time. He's always holy and he's always just. What's the significance of him saying, I will put an end to the pride? Maybe, maybe if you weren't here last week, this might be a little bit harder of a question to know what some of the themes are in Isaiah. Why is he singling out pride there? What do you think in relation to the story of Isaiah? Yeah. Number one human failing for us, right, is pride. And it was absolutely the number one failing in the book of Isaiah. That Israel, in their pride, rejected God, went to other nations for help, trusted other nations instead of God, right? And then you have nations like Assyria, especially the kings, kings, absolutely. Supposed to be the shepherds, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And they turned to they turned from God and they, they were all on their own. We're gonna see that theme of pride in trusting themselves or trusting other nations or trusting their military might or something like that continue time and time again in the book of Isaiah. And so that's why he singles out pride there. And of course, even the pride of we'll see it in Babylon later on. They're just like right in Assyria too. They're just like nothing can touch us. We're the biggest nation on earth. And I'm reminded of like Psalm 2, right? God just laughs as the nations, you know, plot against him because they can't overcome his authority. So chapter 13, judgment of Babylon. Chapter 14, though, we get glimpses of the heart of God to restore. And chapter 14, verse 1 says, For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will choose Israel again. He will settle them on their own land. The resident alien will join with them and be united with the house of Jacob. And if we stop there, think about that. The Lord, this is a prophecy, right? The Lord will have compassion, will choose Israel again. He says he will settle them in their own land. Does this happen? Yeah? When does this happen? Or what? Absolutely. So after the 70 years captivity, remember, we have guys like Nehemiah who then were sanctioned to go back to Israel and rebuild the city. So it does happen. So there's a near fulfillment, right? We, we see that a lot in books like Isaiah and Prophets. There's a near fulfillment, but there's also a far fulfillment. What's, what's the far fulfillment in this? Yeah, second coming, right? That Israel, you read books like Romans, specifically Romans 11, where God says, yes, I judged Israel, I rejected Israel, but I'm not going to make a complete end to Israel. There's still a little bit that's, that's there. There's a remnant that's there, right? And in some way, Israel is going to be saved. Of course, there's a, a raging debate whether that means all of Israel, which I would not agree with because people have to repent and believe. But still, there's going to be a remnant from within Israel that's going to understand, and, and they're going to play a big, a big, big part in that as God's special nation in Christ's return, right? So we have the near fulfillment and the far fulfillment, right? And of course, in Romans 11, I've got to remember I have these things on the slides too that you guys are getting all the answers all the time. I can't get good help nowadays, not even myself. 
14.3 is, uh, and onward, is some awesome biblical trash talking about the king of Babylon, and uh, it's just a, a huge taunt against Babylon, again, for their shocker, pride. Look at 14 in verse 13. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Oh boy. (laughs) Somebody's asking for a beating, right? And this is in the middle of this taunt and trash talking and God saying, remember you said all that? You remember that? I do too, because I'm going to bring you down. I am going to, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it might be a little, I see where you're getting that, the, sh- the shining morning star, you've fallen from the heavens, right, all of that. It might be a little tricky to get that out of this just in context, but there might be something to that. You might be referring to, uh, Satan is kind of, you know, the, the yep, yep, a model and a type, just like you have types of Christ, you know, pointing to Christ, you know, you could have echoes of that, of Satan in here, right? But the idea is still that uh, Babylon was way too big for their britches, and even said, I will make myself like the Most High, but you will be brought down to Sheol, verse 15 says, in the deepest regions of the pit, All right? So again, because of pride, once again, they're going to be humble. They're going to be responsible for their sin, even though they did what God's bidding was in many ways. Evil is still evil. Objective truth actually exists. The Bible talks about it all the time. Chapters 14, 24 through 19, 25, and then again in 21, we can pretty much just breeze by because this is the same thing over and over again. Uh, different nations, remember you saw in the video, they were listing different nations there uh, against uh, Philistia, against Moab, uh, against Damascus, against Israel again, against nations, against Cush, against Egypt, continues on and on and on, right? So it's not just those nations that are right there that are, you know, Israel and Babylon or Israel and Assyria, it's everybody. God's over all the nations and God's going to bring all the nations to an account Israel will be judged too, of course. And there's the big point in all this, uh, for example, comes up several times, but chapter 17, verse 7 and 8 is a, a good summary. It says, On that day, people will look to their maker and will turn their eyes to the Holy One of Israel. Watch this. They will not look to the altars they have made with their hands or to the Asherahs or the shrines they made with their fingers. What's that telling us? On that day, meaning judgment, when it finally happens, when, when Israel is overrun and exiled, what are, what's this telling us? What are people going to look to when it all comes to fruition, right? When judgment's on their doorstep, where are they going to look? They're going to look to God, finally, right? <laughs> They're going to be like, wow, this really happened. Assyria is here. It was kind of cool, cute in the video where, you know, you saw the Assyrians knocking on the front door, right? It's like, Assyria is really here. It really happened. Like, when you tell your kids you're going to pull the car over if they don't stop, and you actually pull the car over, right? Then they're like, oh, you meant it. It's like, yes. 
Yes, I do have a funny story about Mikey that I won't tell right now about that. But yeah, it's kind of that reality that like, wow, for the last hundreds of years, we kind of thought you were kidding. But no. And in that moment, right, and, and hopefully we see that moment within ourselves, when we are really faced with crisis, then we don't run to our idols. When it really is that time we run to whom we know will save us, and that's God. Elsewhere in Scripture, he taunts them, right? I think it's in the Psalms where he says, um, why don't you go to your idols? You know, why don't you call them up? See how they're doing. If you're, if you're all miserable now, call those guys up. See, how they're, see, see if Baal's going to help you. I don't, I don't think he will. Probably won't take your call. So, Very, very important theme within that God is trying to teach Israel to stop relying on everything else and everyone else around them and rely on their God. Chapter 20 is an important little side excursus. It is a, a prophecy about Cush and or Egypt, and it is a sign act. Isaiah and Jeremiah both performed a lot of sign acts, meaning that they would actually physically do some of these things to represent something else that was going to happen. And this is kind of a comical one. If we look at uh, chapter 20, verse 1, in the year that the chief commander sent by King Sargon of Assyria came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it, during that time, the Lord had spoken through Isaiah, son of Amoz, saying, go take off your sackcloth, remove the sandals from your feet. And he did that, going stripped and barefoot. The Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot three years as a sign and omen against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old alike, stripped and barefoot with bared buttocks, to Egypt's shame. Isaiah, how'd you like that? How'd you like that message from God? I need you to get completely naked and live like that for three years. It's a big lesson. People will get it later on, but that's what God tells Isaiah to do, and that's what Isaiah does. And in the end, God says, remember I had you do that? It's a prophecy against Cush and Egypt. That is, that is how they will be taken away to exile, right? Sometimes we could think that these things in the Bible are not the naked part, but the exile part, right? It's just like, oh, that just happened to Israel. No, that stuff happened all the time. With nations coming in, conquering other nations, they either killed all the men or then they took the slaves, they took the women and children, they took everything and they exiled them. And so these things happened all the time. Sometimes if you get into conversations with people who are atheists or agnostics or even progressive Christians, it's just like they want to pick out these things of how terrible God was and how terrible the people of Israel was. It was like, dude, that was the world. That was the world that they lived in. It was not this cushy 2021, oh, my office isn't air-conditioned enough or heated enough. It's like people came into your country and ticked down your door and killed everybody or you took everybody away. And that's what happened every day. So it is, it is kind of God using, again, history and the things that are going on all around him for his purposes as well, using the evil that is in men's heart. And in our little case of Isaiah, kind of a bummer of an assignment for three years, but God was proving a point through that. 
Not an assignment that I would like very much myself. Chapter 22, interesting. He talks about a pronouncement concerning the valley of vision. Any idea what this valley of vision could be? Any idea what a valley of vision it would be? Maybe just from just from the name of it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, physically it could be Jerusalem, but, but I guess symbolically, right? What's the meaning he's trying to portray through a valley of vision? Yep, prophecy, right? But prophecy that's related to, if you're in a valley, right, you're down low, right? And, and sometimes when we are humble, when we are down low, right? He's coming at them against pride, right? And so guess what? I'm going to humble you. You're going to be in a valley, and isn't it amazing sometimes when we're humble or when we're going through trial or we're whatever, you know, I'm looking at Lori and she's nodding because we both can relate to that with cancer and things, right? When the Lord has your complete attention, right? Then it's like, I get it. What are you trying to tell me? You know, now I can understand. Now I'm in the valley of vision, right? Where I can get that. And for you Puritan fans, that's where this comes from. It comes from this chapter in Isaiah. And if you don't have this book, The Valley of Vision, I completely recommend getting this book. It is a collection of Puritan prayers, and it will do wonders for your prayer life, for your devotional life, and other things. So it's taken right out of this passage. And so in those times where we feel ourselves in the valley, look around, you know. There is low-hanging fruit for us to uh, get there, to us to pick off, right? So it is a prophecy probably about the eventual fall of Jerusalem. And again, their main offense was not trusting God. Look at 22, the second half of verse 8. He says, On that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You saw that there were many breaches in the walls of the city of David. You collected water from the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem so that you could tear them down to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the walls for the water of the, uh, of the ancient pool, but you did not look to the one who made it or consider the one who created it long ago. This is saying that they did all they could to prepare for the coming invasion, right? They, they did kind of the right things, right? They built a wall. They built a tunnel. When, you're in, when we were in Israel, I, I took a picture of it. I forgot to put it in there. But it's this remnant of this outer wall that actually still runs through parts of the city. And in order to make that wall, they had to demolish some of the houses. And so that's what he's talking about there. When you, you count the houses that were by the wall to get rid of them so that you can build this wall to protect ourselves. Right? They built pools. They built a huge tunnel, Hezekiah's Tunnel. If you ever go there, it's a freaky thing to do. It's very, very long and scary, but it's, I recommend it. But it's where they had made sure that there was water running from the upper pool to probably the pool of Siloam, right, where the, they would come, the water would come down. So that just in case they were in, in siege, they could still have water. So they're making all these preparations, and God's saying, that's great, you're taking care of water and everything else, but you didn't consult me. You didn't look to the one who made the water. You didn't look to the one who made everything or consider the one who created it long ago. Same sin, guys, coming up time and time again. God's saying the same thing. You're relying on other things. You're not relying on me. Yeah? 
Yeah. Yeah. We sometimes uh, the news can kind of uh, incite that kind of panic, right? We have the rise of the preppers and other things. I have a bunker in my backyard. I don't have a bunker in my backyard. There's another reaction too, uh, especially Ephraim, which we'll see in a little while, was very well known for it in in the northern, um, where you could just escape instead of uh, making a bunker and having lots of canned food and weapons and ammunition and stuff, just ignore it. And so we'll see time and time again uh, the idea of uh, Ephraim eating and drinking in, in the first last part of verse 13, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right, that that just it's kind of a poetic kind of thing. That's just like, what else are we gonna do? Like, you know, Assyria is gonna be here before you know it. Let's just get hammered. You know, there's there's nothing else to do. But Ephraim especially was well known for that. They just they just said, forget it. What are we gonna do? We might as well just be drunk all the time. And comes at them. That's another escape mechanism, right? Is self indulgence. So you see that we're gonna we're gonna see that what God wants you to do is trust Him. But instead, you could just prep yourself like crazy and go through all of the press to try and take matters into your own hand, or you could just escape everything and just ignore everything. Neither one is right. What God wants us to do is trust Him. So sometimes they focused on self-indulgence as well. Chapter 23's pronouncement against Tyre and and Sidon. And then 24 through 27 starts the, the tale of two cities. There's two cities that he talks about, a lofty city. Again, we can see again, lofty, pride. We can see that happening. One more, another theme there. And then also the theme of New Jerusalem coming in, which is the replacement of the city, uh, the lofty city of pride. And look at 26, verses 3 through 6 there. And maybe you recognize this, right? So in the middle of all this, sometimes we pluck out these things from Isaiah, right? Which are great verses to think about. Um, this is a great verse that many of you will remember. But now maybe if we think about the context of it, 23, or 26 in verse 3, it says, You will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it is trusting in you. Trust in the Lord forever, because in the Lord the Lord himself is an everlasting rock. And think about that, right? Many of you maybe have memorized it, right? Or keeping our minds steadfast on you, right? You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Like these things that we remember, but remember the context of where this is coming from. God's saying, I know Assyria is coming. I've been telling you Assyria is coming. But you'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. And then we think about that in our day, like, the stresses of our job or the stresses of a family situation or a relationship or whatever else, and we quote that first, and we should, but think about it in its context. It was, it was a nation that was about to be judged and taken off to exile. But the interesting thing is why? Like, why is this, um, why would we trust in the Lord forever? And verse 5 answers that, for he has humbled those who live in lofty places in an inaccessible city. He brings it down, he brings it down to the ground, he throws it to the dust. Feet trample it, the feet of the humble, and the steps of the poor. So, so why is God to be trusted according to verses 5 and 6? He says, for what? Because what? 
yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, we're going to trust you because you smashed the prideful. But in that is saying what? That God is just. God is holy. Yeah, absolutely. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not a fickle God that we have to worry about pleasing or what is he going to like today or something like that. So it's interesting when you put those two things together, the admonition to trust God because of who God is, right? You trust God because he's faithful, because he's just, because he is completely the same always, because he is completely powerful and he is out like that verse, right? That Lori quoted. Yeah, that was this week. Yeah, gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. It's like, wow. I don't want God to resist me, right? But yet he calls us to trust him, trust as he is, right? So again, it's, it's, it's Isaiah's message points far beyond just this day. Because we see this for Jerusalem, right? God is calling them and, and Israel to trust him, but he will restore them. And again, near fulfillment, far fulfillment once again. And, and that's how we participate in it because we're part of New Jerusalem. We're part of the church because of Christ. All right. Questions, comments so far? The Bible tells one story, right? Yeah. That common thread. Was it Spurgeon or Luther who said that was a crimson thread? One of those guys. The idea that, of course, it runs through Christ and runs through his blood. The main story of the Bible. Um, in chapter 28, this is where um, we get more to Ephraim, which is another word for the northern kingdom, and their idea was to escape from everything. And so this is where he tears into them. He says, Woe to the majestic crown of Ephraim's drunkards, to the fading flower, its beautiful splendor. Woe to those overcome with wine. And then he goes on and on and on. But this is, this is what he was accusing them of, of escaping through this, right? It's like, why are they drunk all the time? Well, they know that judgment's coming and they're escaping. Yes, it's all Samaria, Ephraim. Yeah. Yeah, Samaritans were the half-breeds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, but they still will be judged for their sin as well. In, in 16, we get another familiar prophecy. 16 says, uh, 28, 16 says, Therefore the Lord God has said, Look, I've laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Right? Common theme of the Bible, right? Christ being a cornerstone. Right? And it's Zion because it comes through Judah, comes through Jerusalem, comes through the line of David in that. So it's prophecy of the Messiah that we see in the middle of 28 where he's warning them. Right? 
And then 29 through 35, we have a bunch of more woe, um, woe oracles, some guys call them. But there's some cool things to pull out in the midst of this, and I just want to run through a bunch of them because they, they encourage us. And so in 29.16, it says, You have turned things around as if the potter were the same as the clay. How can what is made say about its maker, He didn't make me. How can what is formed say about the one who formed it, He doesn't understand what he's doing. <laughs> this idea that the, the absurdity of us questioning God and what he's doing, what he's made us to do, what purposes are... Okay, so fine. We don't like some of the purposes that God has going on right now in our lives, but they're here. And it's the idea that imagine a pot turning around to the, the potter and saying, you don't know what you're doing. You're not making me. You don't even know You don't even know what you're making me for. Or saying, he didn't make me. No, I just made myself. I'm just here. I just existed, right? How can one who is formed say about the one who formed it, he doesn't understand what he's doing? He's calling on God as a creator and saying it's ridiculous when his creation, questioning the sovereignty of God in those ways. We have to remember that. In 30, verse 1, he pronounces woe well on the rebellious children. This is the Lord's declaration, Isaiah says, they carry out a plan but not mine. They make an alliance, but against my will, piling sin on top of sin. What does that mean? They make an alliance against my will. Yep. They went to everybody else around them. Yep. Here, help us, help us, help us. Instead of going to God. Right? And God says, they're taking the sin of rebellion against me, and then they're adding to it, doing something which I told them not to do. Don't make covenants with other nations. And don't just turn your back on me and go to someone else for help. So we're adding sin to sin. And, and that's a great example for us to not do that in our own lives. Right? Sometimes, even as parents, right? When, when kids were little or whatever and they're being very disrespectful and thing, they're sinning, right? So we don't have to meet their sin with more sin of our own. Holy Spirit's full. Doesn't need a junior Holy Spirit to help convict, right? When our spouse hypothetically speaking, because no spouses would do that here. When our spouse says a harsh word to us, we don't meet that sin with more sin. It's not what we do. And that principle is carried throughout Scripture. Don't meet sin with more sin. In 15 through 18 of, of chapter 30, he tells them something again. He says, For the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, You will be delivered by returning and resting. Your strength will lie in quiet confidence, but you're not willing. You say, no, we will escape on horses. Therefore, you will escape and you will ride on fast horses, but those who pursue you will be faster. One thousand will flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you will flee until you remain like a solitary pole on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. He says, guys, this is how you're going to get through this. You're going to trust in me. You're going to have quiet returning and resting, and that will be your strength to trust me. But no, it's like Israel right away says, no, we've got it covered. We've got super fast horses. That's how we're going to get away from Assyria. And God says, that's not going to work. Their horses are faster than your horses, by the way. They're going to catch up to you. And remember when we were going through Joshua, we had all those battle narratives where it was just like they had 300 guys and they whooped 8 million, right? 
Look at the reversal here that he says. He says, he says there will be um, 1,000 will flee at the threat of one. He's talking about Israel. He says 1,000 of you will flee at the threat of one of their warriors. Right? It's reversed. So God's judging them in the reverse of the promised land. <coughs> at the threat of five, you will flee. Right? The idea that they're going to be so paranoid, they're going to be so uh, fill of, filled of fear, worry, and anxiety that the opposite is going to happen. God's not going to work strength through them in that way. In verse 18, he says, The Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a just God. All who wait patiently for him are happy. Time and time again, he's saying, Stop going to other nations. Stop sinning. Stop and just rest in me. Trust me. And they refuse to do it. So a good picture of God's plan versus our plan. And then 31 is a good summary of really the book. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and depend on horses, right? Military might. They trust in the abundance of chariots and the large number of horsemen, but they don't look to the Holy One of Israel and they don't seek the Lord. But he is also wise. He brings disaster. He does not go back on what he says. He will rise up against the house of the wicked and against the allies of evildoers. The lesson in that is a lesson that Isaiah has been saying over and over and over again. Trust God instead of blank. And so is that not completely relative to us? Woe to those who trust in blank instead of God. And so where are we tempted to not trust God, right? Woe to us who trust in comfort or financial gain or escapism or our identity or status or works or anything else instead of God. Same message, same message over and over and over again, right? All right, other questions, thoughts? Because I have a surprise for you. Second movie. You're like, yeah. <laughs> Woo. All right, so. And in uh, 36 through 39, it is this big, very confusing, and I can't explain it the way this guy does, and plus he has a British accent, so that's doubly cool. But it is a historic, what's happening is that Hezekiah is now king of Judah, and now Assyria is on the scene, and now it's about to go down. But there are other nations in play that he has trusted again, instead of trusting in God. And these are things that are then actually intertwined with historical facts that we can find in uh, the remnants of Sennacherib and the remnants of all these other actual historical things that verify what happened here. And so instead of me... uh, trying to muddle my way through it, I found this 11-minute video that will be a very, very cool thing for you history nerds, but it summarizes 36 through really 38 in in what is going on. So a little bonus movie for my friends at Midweek. Let's see if this... Welcome. So we're exploring the second crisis of Isaiah's ministry, which is the confrontation between King Hezekiah of Judah and King Sennacherib of Assyria. So let's bring up the map and review why this confrontation took place. So in 705 BC, Sennacherib becomes the king of Assyria. 
And as soon as he takes the throne, both Merodach Baladan of Babylon and Hezekiah of Judah both decide that it's the perfect time to revolt against Assyria. Sennacherib, in response, first heads down to Babylon and defeats Merodach Baladan, and then he heads west to go deal with Hezekiah. And this is where our confrontation between Sennacherib and Hezekiah takes place, and we read about it in Isaiah chapters 36 to 39. In chapter 36, verse 1, we read, quote, In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria came against all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. End quote. So this verse tells us that Sennacherib doesn't at first directly attack Hezekiah in Jerusalem. Rather, before attacking Jerusalem, he attacks other fortified cities in Judah. And one of these cities is Lachish, which is a city southwest of Jerusalem, as you can see. And in fact, we know that Sennacherib destroyed Lachish not because the Bible tells us, but rather Sennacherib himself tells us. For you see, we have found reliefs which depict the Assyrian attack upon Lachish. These reliefs once decorated Sennacherib's palace at Nineveh and can now be found in the British Museum in London. The reliefs were discovered in about 1850 by Austin Henry Layard. Laid writes in 1853, quote, Here, therefore, was the actual picture of the taking of Lachish, the city as we know from the Bible, besieged by Sennacherib when he sent his generals to demand tribute of Hezekiah. End quote. And as you can see, these reliefs depict Assyrian soldiers attacking Lachish with spears, rocks with slings, and bows and arrows. And then, once entering Lachish, we have images of the Assyrians inflicting horrible torture upon the Judeans, for example, tearing them apart and impaling them. One of the images portrays Sennacherib seated upon a throne with the following inscription beside him, quote, Sennacherib, the mighty king, king of the country of Assyria, sitting on the throne of judgment before the city of Lachish, I give permission for its slaughter, end quote. Furthermore, excavations of Lachish have revealed slings and stones used by the Assyrians, as well as an Assyrian siege ramp. So we just have a wealth of archaeological evidence for the Assyrian siege of Lachish. Now, after destroying Lachish, Sennacherib then turns his attention to Jerusalem. But before he attacks the city, he sends one of his military leaders to Jerusalem to warn the inhabitants about this coming attack. We read about this in chapter 36, starting in verse 2, quote, Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, son of Hilakah, who was in charge of the palace, and Shibna the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder. End quote. So in these verses, we are introduced to the Rabshakeh which is a title of an Assyrian military leader. And the Rabshakeh is sent to Jerusalem to warn the city about this coming Assyrian attack. And the people who go out and meet the Rabshakeh are Eliakim, Shibna, and Joah, who are all high-ranking officials in Hezekiah's government. So Hezekiah's officials go and meet the Assyrian military leader to hear about this impending attack upon Jerusalem. Now, the way in which the Rabshakeh warns the Judeans about this coming attack can only be described in one way, and that is trash talk. Now, I do like to keep things scholarly on this channel, but there simply isn't any other way to describe it. So let's now read a few excerpts to get a flavour of the Rabshakeh's warning to Jerusalem. 
and I'm actually going to be reading from the NLT, which while it does lack the precision of other translations, it really does make up for it by really capturing the tone and character of the text. So let's start in verse 4. Quote, then the Assyrians king's chief of staff told them to give this message to Hezekiah. This is what the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Do you think that mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you have rebelled against me? On Egypt? If you lean on Egypt, it will be like a reed that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is completely unreliable. But perhaps you'll say to me, we are trusting in the Lord our God. But isn't he the one who was insulted by Hezekiah? Didn't Hezekiah tear down his shrines and altars and make everyone in Judah and Jerusalem worship only at the altar here in Jerusalem? I'll tell you what, strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can find that many men to ride on them. With your tiny army, how can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops, even with the help of Egypt's chariots and charioteers? What's more, do you think we have invaded your land without the Lord's direction? The Lord himself told us, attack this land and destroy it. End quote. In another section of this text, the Rabshaka continues hurling insults at the Judeans. In verse 18 we read, Don't let Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will rescue us. Have the gods of any other nations ever saved their people from the king of Assyria? What happened to the gods of Hamath and Arpad? What about the gods of Serevim? Did any god rescue Samaria from my power? What god of any nation has been able to save its people from my power? So what makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem from me? End quote. After the Rabshakeh finishes warning the Judeans about the coming attack, he returns to Sennacherib, who is now in the city of Libna. And it is at Libna that we read that the king of Ethiopia becomes involved in this crisis. So let's now read all of that, which is in verses 8 to 9. Quote, the Assyrian chief of staff left Jerusalem and went to consult the king of Assyria, who had left Lachish and was attacking Libna. Soon afterward, King Sennacherib received word that King Tahaka of Ethiopia was leading an army to fight against him. End quote. So let's stop here for a moment and discuss this King Tahaka of Ethiopia. The NLT translates it as Ethiopia, but other translations will refer to it as Cush. And we know that Cush is a country below Egypt. So the text tells us that the king of Cush comes to the aid of the Judeans. Now, it's very important that we know what's going on in Cush and Egypt at this time. Because during this time period, Cush has taken control of Egypt, which means we have African pharaohs. And we know that Pharaoh Taharqa was one of these African pharaohs. Taharqa is not just mentioned in the biblical text. He's also mentioned in Egyptian records, and we actually have many artifacts of him. So this Taharqa, who ruled over both Cush and Egypt, came to the aid of Hezekiah, in an attempt to repel the Assyrian attack. Now, when Sennacherib sees Tahaka coming to help Hezekiah, he becomes infuriated, and he sends this letter to Hezekiah. Quote, Before leaving to meet the attack, he sent messengers back to Hezekiah in Jerusalem with this message. This message is for King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you with promises that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. You know perfectly well what the kings of Assyria have done wherever they have gone. They have completely destroyed everyone who stood in their way. Why should you be any different? 
After Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. End quote. Hezekiah then proceeds to deliver a heartfelt and faithful prayer for God's protection of Jerusalem. When the prophet Isaiah hears Hezekiah's prayer to God, Isaiah announces that because Hezekiah has been faithful, God will protect Jerusalem. Isaiah proclaims in verse 33, quote, And this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. His armies will not enter Jerusalem. They will not even shoot an arrow at it. They will not march outside its gates with their shields, nor build banks of earth against its walls. The king will return to his own country by the same road on which he came. He will not enter this city, says the Lord. For my own honour and for the sake of my servant David, I will defend this city and protect it. End quote. So now the question is, how is God going to protect his city? And we read about this in verses 36 to 37. Quote, that night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own country. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and stayed there. End quote. So there you have it. God saves his city by a miracle. An angel comes from heaven and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers outside the walls of Jerusalem. So according to the Bible, which obviously represents a Jewish perspective, a miracle stopped the Assyrian invasion of Jerusalem. Now, what are we to think about such a miraculous claim? Should we believe it or should we be doubtful? What we would really love in this situation is some more information on the event from different perspectives to truly understand what took place. And in fact, for this crisis, we actually do have independent reporting of the event from different perspectives. So not only do we have the biblical account in Isaiah, which gives us the Jewish perspective, but we also have an account from King Sennacherib himself who left behind a prism which recounts all his military campaigns and includes his siege upon Jerusalem. So this prism provides us with an Assyrian perspective on the event. Also, if you remember when we were reading the biblical text, we read about Pharaoh Taharqa, who ruled over both Cush and Egypt, and we read about how Pharaoh Taharqa got involved in this conflict. So you might be thinking to yourself, well, do we have an Egyptian perspective on this event since Egypt was involved in it? And in fact, we do. Herodotus provides us with an account of this event, which he tells us he got from the Egyptians. Thus, Herodotus provides us with an Egyptian perspective of this account. So this is really quite an amazing fact. We have three different accounts of this event from three different perspectives. If this doesn't get you excited, then nothing will. So in the next video, we'll be reading Sennacherib's prism to find out how Sennacherib perceived the event. Does his prism talk about an angel coming and killing his soldiers? Well, to find out, you're going to have to stay tuned until my next video. So thank you so much for watching this video. If you've enjoyed it, it would really help me out if you hit the like button and left some feedback. In Maybe we'll watch the Sennacherib prism video next week. We'll... That was... Uh... <laughs> yeah, so I wanted you to see that. Um, I'm just still laughing at his comment, you know. That's a guy that's in his field. Like, if that doesn't get you excited, nothing will. 
we have slightly different ideas of what's exciting and what's not. But that is still exciting, that we do have historical evidence of what happened. And if we kind of back up a little bit through that and just review that as we kind of run this to a close, right? What, what God had been saying all along was that the Assyrians were there. They actually did show up. Hezekiah actually did make a deal with the Egyptians, which was the wrong thing to do, which actually ticks off Sennacherib more, right? But then what does Hezekiah do? He goes to God. He gets on his face in the temple. He spreads out this letter. Like, think about that. The next time you get a crazy text or an email, just take your phone, spread it out, and like, you know, go to God. Pray. He's praying about that. And God answers his prayer and answers his prayer in a big way. Think about that. One angel of the Lord kills 185,000 men. It's like one, one, just one. It's craziness to think about. And then the idea, again, that we have extra biblical support um, throughout that and with the, the Egyptian perspective and also this, the, the uh, prism as well from, from Sennacherib himself. We would like to say that then Hezekiah goes on his way and rides off into the sunset victorious as one of the greatest kings ever but unfortunately, that is not true because chapter 39 closes by uh, a new empire coming, right? Now it's Babylon's turn. So the new empire comes on the scene. And what, is, what does um, Hezekiah do? He wants to curry their favor right away. So he says, come on in. Yeah, come on over. Look at, all of the, look at all of my mighty kingdom. Look at all of the things in my storehouse. Look at all of the treasure and all of the buildings and all of the things that we have. And you could just see Isaiah standing behind him going, are you nuts? Have you lost your mind? So he literally gives the Babylonian empire inside information on what Israel is like. Not only that whets their appetite for the day when they will come. And sure enough, a hundred years later, uh, they do. And the Lord uses them to actually then finish what Assyria tried to do. They kick in the door in 538 and they, they enact judgment on Judah. And all because, again, full circle, the pride of Hezekiah. Showing them how great he is and all of his treasures and all of that. And it plays right into the plan of God. So, it ends on a sour note, unfortunately, for Hezekiah. But some theological takeaways um, the trustworthiness of God, of course, compared to Ahaz. And we saw that in the first part, right? Ahaz was the one who just didn't trust God at all, who just ran to other nations. Hezekiah, of course, did go to God. So he had a good start. Didn't finish so well, but he had a good start. Ahaz called on the Assyrians. Hezekiah looked like he was going to trust God at first, and he was delivered, but then relies on himself in the end. And again, our lesson is trust God instead of blank, instead of whatever else you can fill in right there. God is faithful even when we are not. God's plan continued through Israel, of course, with Jesus the Messiah, despite their failings, and we're very thankful. God's plan cannot be stopped. I mean, how many times did Israel nearly thwart what God was doing by going to other nations or doing this or rejecting God or worshiping false idols or whatever else, taking matters into their own hands? God's plan cannot be stopped. And there's, there's this idea, too, of salvation coming through judgment. And we see that as a common, scene, uh, common theme throughout the Bible, right? That, that 
There's a judgment that comes down, and then that's actually how God saves in that, right? He judges the nation of Israel, but he still provides salvation through that with Christ and bring that forward to Christ, right? He judges sin on the cross with what Christ did. But in doing that, he brings salvation. And so sometimes we think of judgment like it's a bad thing, and yes, we don't want to be judged, but we are so thankful that God has judged our sin in Christ. So when we think of God, we always have to have like two wings of that airplane, right? We think of God's mercy, but we think of God's justice as well. We think of God's judgment, but we think of what he's doing in the midst of judgment and bringing salvation. So deep themes in Isaiah that we see playing out in history. And uh, just, I hope it boosts your faith too to see some of these things, the archaeological things and some of these things that we, <laughs> Wendy's like, yes. It's good. It's, it's really cool stuff. And if you ever get the chance to go to Israel, uh, definitely do that. And you can see some of these things up and close and personal. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did Jonah predate? I, I want to say I think so. It would make sense, but I haven't looked at the dates. Oh yeah. Yeah, and then they went home and they carved it on their cave walls. This is what we did to the Judeans. It's like, whoa. Okay, cool. What? Oh, Nineveh, the Ninevites did, yeah, 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 which made Ju uh, Jonah even matter. yes. <laughs> then he gets mad at God, that's one of my favorite things, how dare you, I knew you were merciful, I knew you would forgive them, I hate them so much, that's why I didn't want to go. <laughs> that, that would have been, yeah, that, that was probably Jonah's prayer, can we do something like that, just like, let me watch, just turn it into a smolding pile of dust, let's go. <laughs> God's ways are above our ways. He's got his purposes. Well, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for uh, your word, and Isaiah is just uh, massive in its scope, its historical depth. But uh, Lord, the culmination of what you've been saying to Israel in so many ways, and of course Isaiah continuing to say that, Lord, we get glimpses of your redemption. We get glimpses of how you work through judgment and we are so thankful that you rise above us, Lord. Even when we are not faithful, you are faithful. So cause us to trust in you instead of the things that we tend to trust in. Give us strength to do those things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.